I'm going to do a quick recap of our series. Uh, for the month of January, we're doing a series called Starting the Year Right. So we began by preaching on how Abraham started the year right. And then we went to Moses, how he did started the year right. And then last week, we talked about David and the Ark of the Covenant, how he started the year right. Today, I want to talk to you about how Jesus did it. So from Abraham to Moses, David, now Jesus. The word for today is surrender. The word for today is surrender. When you hear the word surrender, what comes to mind is defeat, shame, pity. It's very un-American. In fact, I would say that it's against the human spirit. You don't surrender. You, you keep on doing what you're doing. Surrender is the opposite of victory. We live in a society that thrives and promotes winning. So when you hear the word surrender, it's like, I don't want this. I don't like this. But you see, surrender is one of the most misunderstood words in the scriptures. When you try to read the Bible and you try to reflect on our faith, being Christian, you cannot help the fact that we are face-to-face with understanding that Christianity is a calling to surrender. That our discipleship, the call of Jesus for discipleship is a calling to surrender. That whenever you call Jesus Lord and Master, that implies surrender. Jesus was once asked by a certain man, how do I inherit eternal life? This guy is rich. Now, according to Mark chapter 10, a guy came to him, he's rich, and he went to Jesus and said, how do I inherit eternal life? Now, this guy, according to the Bible, according to Mark, according to him, he's been doing everything that the law says. He honors his parents. He he practices Sabbath. He doesn't doesn't, uh, do idols. He doesn't murder. He doesn't steal. He's following the Ten Commandments. And yet he's asking Jesus now, how do I inherit eternal life? What he's really asking Jesus is, what else am I missing in my checklist to secure the next life? That's what he's asking. He's trying to ask, how do I secure the next life? I can secure, I have already secured everything here. I have ever, I have everything I ever wanted here. I have everything I need. But how do I secure the next life? That's his question. Now, there are two things, two ways, how to secure an inheritance. We're talking about inheritance in the biblical context. There are two ways to secure an inheritance. Number one, the easiest way is to become an heir. If you want to be an heir, you will be a son. And the only way you can be a son is to be born in the right family. So automatically, when your father dies, you get something, inheritance. So no matter if you are the firstborn, the secondborn, or the last, you will have an inheritance. Now, if you remember the parable of Jesus about the prodigal son, there's this one father, he has two sons. The youngest son said, one day, I want to enjoy life. I want to go over there on the other part of the city, and I want to experience what life has to offer. So he, one day, he went to his dad, and he said, I want to have my inheritance. I mean, this is out of the ordinary. Because you only get your inheritance when your father dies. And this guy, his father's still alive. And yet he asked for his inheritance. And the interesting thing is that his father gave it to him. So he got his inheritance and he sold it because he wanted to spend it. So he sold it, he wanted to spend it. And then when he spent it, he spent it on things that, you know, that, that you can experience in this life. Not in the next life. So he spent his inheritance. Every son is an heir and every heir 
will get an inheritance. That's the easiest way to have an inheritance. The second way is to acquire that inheritance. So when he sold it, that means somebody bought it from him, correct? And that guy, somebody bought it from him, that guy got the inheritance. We're talking about the piece of land. That's the inheritance in the context of Israel. But this guy knows, the one who bought the inheritance, that he cannot acquire it permanently. He can only have it temporarily. Why? Because the Old Testament law says that he has returned that piece of land that he bought on the 50th year. It's called the year of the Jubilee. All the lands in Israel cannot be bought and sold permanently. It has to be given back to God. So on the 50th year, year of the Jubilee, he has to return it. So this guy with that context is asking Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? There's one thing I want to reflect upon this morning. A lot of people would think that we are all children of God. And if we are all children of God, we're going to heaven. That's not true. The Bible doesn't teach that. This passage, in fact, tells us that not everyone is a children of God. This guy has been following the law. But this guy understood that he doesn't have the inheritance. Why? Because he's not a son. See, not everyone is a son. Any Jew or any Israelite is not guaranteed an inheritance of eternal life. They know that. That's why this guy is asking, how do I inherit eternal life? Following the law, following the Old Testament law does not guarantee eternal life. Oh, Pastor, I've been doing things. I've been good. I've been, I've been, you know, giving away to the poor. I've been good to my neighbor. I'm not murdering anyone. I'm not stealing anything. I'm good. Bad news is that you're not going to heaven. But just simply by doing that, you don't have eternal life. The only way you can have eternal life is if you become an heir. You can only be an heir if you are a son. This guy said, I've been following the law meticulously from my youth. And yet he's asking Jesus, how do I inherit eternal life? That means by implication, he doesn't have it. Simply by following the law won't get you to heaven. And Jesus said, hang on, this is what you do. Verse 21 of Mark chapter 10. Jesus looking at him, loved him, and said to him. Now, let me pause for a minute. When we we read the Bible, sometimes we just brush through reading the Bible and we're not really paying attention to the words. We're just, you know, uh, interested in the response of Jesus. But pay attention to this. It says, Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I mean, this is not a bad guy. This guy, this guy gives pleasure to, to God. He's following the Ten Commandments. He's consistent with his ob- obedience to the law. So it says, looking at him, Jesus loved him. And he said, you lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now, there's a lot of things going on here, but the scriptures say that the man went home depressed. He's depressed. The word for that is disheartened, but he's depressed as we know it. Verse 22 says, disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful. Now, you only get sorrowful when you lose millions of money in stock trading, right? Or you lose someone you love. You don't just become sorrowful just because you're, it's, it's, there's something that saddens you. This guy is sorrowful because he cannot have both ways. 
Now, he was practically given the chance by Jesus to choose either keep the status quo, keep on following the commandments, keep your material possession, but you do not have eternal life. Or, keep on doing the law, sell your possession, follow Jesus, and then you will have eternal life. And the Bible said this guy went away sorrowful because he cannot give up his possessions. I can imagine he, can, he cannot give up his Rolexes or his thousands of acres or maybe houses and lands. He's filthy rich. He cannot. He, he cannot imagine himself literally praying the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. Now, who among us still pray, give us this day our daily bread? Now, this, in this context, when you say, when you pray the Lord's Prayer, give us day our daily bread, it means every day you are just living paycheck to paycheck. But this means that when you pray the Lord's Prayer, give us day our daily bread, is that there's no security. That's why you are asking the Lord to give you today your daily bread. See, in the context of the wilderness experience for 40 years, the people were waiting for manna every day. That's the context of give us this day our daily bread. See, when your fridge is full, it's hard to pray. Give us a day. Well, I have, I have something in my fridge today. I mean, my bank is full. My account is full. I have, I have a stock room full of food. I don't have to pray this way. To really pray this way, give us this day our daily bread, is to really trust on God because there's no other security except on God, from God. And this guy is probably not praying the Lord's Prayer because he's got enough possessions. He's got enough of what he needs in this life. So the Bible said he went away sorrowful because he cannot give up what he has. See, the decision implies not only surrender, but also death. Now, why do I say that? Because in the same book, just two chapters after this, Mark chapter 8, verse 35, it says, whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The only way you can have this kind of life is by way of death. The only way you can have eternal life is by way of death. Here's what the interesting part. The book of Mark begins this way. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. It says, in the beginning, sorry, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Now, there's a very interesting phrasing of the words in here and we're not very aware because we're not familiar with you know first century literature but every time there's a new emperor in rome the news will be disseminated throughout the whole empire and it will begin by the beginning of the gospel the gospel is good news the beginning of the euangelion of emperor so and so and mark had to copy this and and put it in mark to help us see that this is not just another gospel. This is not just another good news. Jesus is the true emperor. And his reign is the real good news. Euangelion. So he said by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, son of God. Because you see, again, the emperors are son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness. So there's a prophecy in Isaiah that there will be a messenger who will just appear and he will announce the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sorry, the coming of God, not Jesus Christ. 
And it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, if you're reading just, just the book of Mark, it's not very clear as to who this Lord is. Prepare the way of the Lord. Who is this Lord? But when you go to the real original chapter, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, you will find out that this is not just some lord or master or king or emperor. This pertains to God. Now, what's interesting here is when Isaiah quoted, when Mark rather quoted the book of Isaiah, he was actually quoting three passages and combining it to one. And we're not very familiar with this one, but when you read the Hebrew, you will see that there's conflagration, there's combination of quotes here. Although he said it's written in Isaiah the prophet, he was actually quoting two more other passages. One is Isaiah 40 verse 3, second is Exodus chapter 23 verse 20, and the third one is Malachi chapter 1 verse 2. He's putting them back together. Now, here's the trick. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, and the original text doesn't have chapters and numbers. And therefore, if you are Mark and you are quoting a passage in the Old Testament, you've got to have photographic memory. Because there's no way you can say, in Isaiah, chap- there's no chapter. In Isaiah verse, there's no verse. You will have just to quote from memory. This is what Mark is doing here. He's quoting from three passages in the, in the Old Testament. Isaiah, Exodus, and Malachi. But Isaiah chapter 40 is a prophecy about the return of God. Now, why would God return here? The, the prophecy is about the return of God from exile. See, in the Old Testament, the whole nation of Israel were given a covenant with God. It's an agreement that they have to be faithful to God, and in return, God will be faithful to them. And if they break the covenant, they will be sold in exile. And you know that happens in the time of Nebuchadnezzar. He marched all the way to Jerusalem took away the people, brought them to the Babylon as exiles. This is what Isaiah has been prophesying. The people has broken the covenant and God will bring them to exile. But the hope is that they will be returned to the land of Israel and that God himself will come back to Israel. What Mark here is saying is that the time has come. It is being fulfilled. God is coming back to Israel. So the original quote is from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, it says this, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Now watch this. The Lord here is all caps. You see it? This all caps in Hebrew is the name of God in Tetragrammaton. H-Y-H-W-H. This is Yahweh. What, What Isaiah is saying is that, In the wilderness, prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight, in the desert, the highway for our God. What he's saying is that God is coming back to Israel in person. He himself. He's coming back in person. But the obvious question is, well, did even God leave in the first place? Why is he coming back? Did he leave in the first place? If yes, the question is when and how? How did God leave in person? Well, we know that the Ark of the Covenant is the throne of God. It's the visible throne of the invisible God. And this ark, when Solomon built the temple, it was placed in the inner chamber. But in 586 BC, it's always the history that we go to. We go to. In 586 BC, Nebuchadnezzar marched to Jerusalem, destroyed the city, destroyed the temple, burned it, and took away all the treasures that's inside the temple, brought it to Babylon. Now, the ark never came back. Do not believe Harrison Ford. 
Indiana Jones, it never came back. No. Raiders of the Lost Ark, if you've, if you've seen it, no, it was not discovered. Even up to now, they have no way to trace where the Ark of the Covenant is. They don't have it. But here's the thing. The invisible throne, the visible throne of God, the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizes the reign of God. Without the Ark, there's no presence of God. That means when they built the second temple, and in the time of Herod, when he refurbished the second temple and renovated it, in the time of Jesus, that means the Ark of the Covenant was not inside the inner chamber. That means the inner chamber was empty. The presence of God was not there. So that means all the people in Israel in the time of Jesus were all waiting for them, for God to come back. Isaiah has been prophesying, God will come back, and now this is the time. And Mark is saying now, now is the time for God to come back. The presence of God will come back. What's interesting is that after Isaiah, there was another prophet who saw a vision. And then he prophesied about this vision. You'll find this in Ezekiel 10. Ezekiel had a vision. He saw heaven. He saw the cherubim. He saw the holy place. But then he also saw that the glory of God departed from Jerusalem. This is a, a very interesting vision. He saw the glory of God departed from Jerusalem away from the temple itself. So that means there's no presence of God inside the temple. And if there's no presence of God inside the temple, God's presence is not with Israel. That's why there's a prophecy for God's presence to come back. Now, there should be no doubt in our minds that when Mark quoted Isaiah, he was saying, look, this is the time that God will return. Watch out. And then he said this, verse 9, In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. Now when you read this, two things come to mind. This sort of baptism of Jesus is kind of cute and it's peaceful and calm. What if I tell you that the language Mark used here is a violent kind of language? There's no way peaceful or calm or cute. It's violent. Let me tell you why. Because baptism is the language of death. Baptism is a language of death. Now, we said the baptism is a language of death. How? Well, we have to listen to Apostle Paul. This is how he explains it. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, he said, for I do not want you to be unaware or ignorant, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. What Moses is trying to say here is that the crossing of the Red Sea, although they just crossed the Red Sea and came out alive, he's saying that this is their baptism. Are you still with me? Yes? Now, this is a little bit hard to, to take if this is your first time to hear this. What Paul is trying to explain it is this, is that the crossing of the Red Sea is symbolic of their transition from one life to another, from one slavery to another. That means every step towards that sea is a step of death. Let me explain why. Imagine you're an Israelite. In front of you is the sea. 
Behind you is the army of Egypt running after you and want to slaughter you. And so, in fact, they were there and they were complaining to Moses. Moses, you've done a very wicked thing. He said, Exodus chapter 14, verse 11. Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? I mean, you brought us here to die? Look at look here. In front of us is the sea. At the back is the army of Pharaoh running after us. There's no way but death. So to them, it's just death all over. So either they wait for the army of Pharaoh and be slaughtered, or they swim across the sea and drown. They will be both dead either way. But imagine what happened after that. Imagine God telling Moses to divide the sea, to put his staff and divide the sea. Imagine the sea is divided. Actually, the Bible said that the strong east wind pushed the waters so there was a, a dry land that appeared. So imagine you're an Israelite. You're walking towards the middle of the sea and there were two walls of water. Can you imagine if just the wind stops and it goes back to its place and you're in the middle of it? You're going to die. That's why we're saying every step towards the middle of the sea is a step of death. Every step is a step of trust. If you're thinking like an ancient Israelite and you are confronted with that scenario, you'll be thinking, wait, hang on. There's there's a story in the Old Testament where there's flood and there's an ark and God rescued Noah. You remember that? So if you're an ancient Israelite, you might be thinking, maybe God will do something to save us from the water. Well, the thing is, there's no Titanic that appeared magically in the book of Exodus. What God did was actually to divide the waters. Yes, God divided the waters. But the thing is, this is not the first time God divided the waters. Are you with me? It happened before. When? Where? First, the first six days of creation. Look at Genesis chapter 1 verse 9. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9, on the second day, God said, Let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place, and let the dry land appear. Now, this is kind of dense, but when you look at Exodus chapter 14, verse 21, and compare them together, two things will appear. Waters are divided, the land appeared. Exodus 14, 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea backed by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided. The same thing, waters were divided, dry land appeared. Same thing in Genesis 1.9, same thing in Exodus chapter 14, verse 21. So if the crossing of the sea was a baptism, sort of baptism according to Paul, and the baptism was about facing a certain kind of death, how does this relate to Jesus' baptism? Now, we understand that the baptism of John was about repentance. Jesus is not, doesn't have sin. He doesn't have to repent. This is a different kind of baptism. This is a baptism of death. So, in verse 10, it says, When he came out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. What is this language about the heavens being torn open? So Jesus came out of the water. It says the heavens were torn open. It's violent. It's torn open. The image is like somebody's ripping the heaven. The image is like the heavens being torn open. 
like the image of the sea when they crossed it, when God pushed the waters with the strong east wind. It was torn apart. Now, if you have, if your clothing has a zipper, it's when you do it, you know, immediately and drastically. It's like you're rending it. It's like you're tearing it apart. That's the language here. Now, the word tear apart or torn apart is very interesting because it was used again when Jesus was arrested. He was brought to the high priest and the high priest asked, are you the son of God? And Jesus said, well, I am. And the high priests tore his robe apart and he said, blasphemy. Now, why is that? Because what Jesus claims to be is the son of God. What Jesus claims is that he is divine. And in the Old Testament understanding, this is blasphemy. To claim that you are divine is blasphemy. That's clear to them. A lot of people would think that there's no way in the New Testament that Jesus claims to be God. That's wrong. This is the proof that Jesus is claiming to be equal with God, divine. That's why the high priest said, blasphemy. And when he said blasphemy, it's the symbol, it's the signal for the verdict. The verdict in the Old Testament is always punishable by death. Blasphemy is punishable by death. But the synagogue, the Sanhedrin, doesn't have the right to execute judgment. That's why he was brought to Pilate. Only the Roman governor has the authority to execute judgment. But nevertheless, the picture here is that the high priest tore his robe. The same, the same word that was used, tore his robe. This language of heaven being torn open was exactly an allusion from Isaiah chapter 63, 64. But in Isaiah chapter 63, now imagine this, Isaiah was praying to God. And he was saying, Lord, look upon your people. Look upon your people from heaven and see what's happening here. And then he goes on with the prayer when he said, Look, Lord, your enemies are trampling your sanctuary. Your enemies are desecrating your holy temple. Look down from heaven. And when he became so impatient in chapter 64, this is what he said. Chapter 64, verse 1, he said, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. You see that? The word rend is the same word as torn. Isaiah has prophesied that God will soon rend the heaven, tear the heaven open so that he can come down. And if you hear that and transport yourself in the time of Mark, Jesus was baptized and he, the heavens were torn open, you will see that what's happening in the baptism is the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 64 verse 1. The heavens being torn open. This means that Jesus himself it's the authentication of God coming down to earth, coming back in person. But there's another story here that's developing, the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know, sometimes we think that this is just plain and simple baptism of Jesus. But truth is, there's so many things going on here. One of that is the story of Abraham and Isaac. You know the story. One day, God said, Abraham, offer your son. Do a human sacrifice. Now, this is very difficult for Abraham because Abraham waited for Isaac. Now, God promised him a son when he was 75 years old. Isaac only came and was born when he was 100 years old. That's 25 years of waiting. And now that Isaac was grown up, God is saying, do a human sacrifice, offer your son. That's difficult. 
I mean, Isaac is the future of his clan. Everything will be passed on to Isaac. And that God is saying, offer your son. It was a test. We know that. But Abram, Abram obeyed God. But what is interesting is, if you go back to the narrative of, of Abraham, this is what God will exactly say. Offer your son, your only son, the son that you love. It's repeated again three times. Offer your son, your only son, the son that you love. Wait, hang on. There's another son. It's, he's called Ishmael. But Ishmael is not a legitimate son. And therefore, what God was referring to was Isaac, the only son, the only legitimate son, the son that he really loves. Now, remember, he kicked out Hagar and Ishmael. He will not give any inheritance to Ishmael and Hagar. Inheritance will be given to Isaac. Isaac's the beloved son. Now, you, if you go to that story, you will not find Isaac wiggling his way out of the sacrifice table when Abraham was about to kill him. You will not find Isaac protesting, Dad, don't kill me. Untie me here. Leave me alone. There's nothing in the Bible like that. What this means is that Isaac was a willing sacrifice. Why? Because he wanted to please his father. And when you see Jesus going to the water, being baptized, understanding that baptism is about death, but that means he sees like Isaac, a willing sacrifice, even up to death. That's why there was a voice from heaven that says, this is my beloved son. Think about Isaac, whom I'm well pleased. Think about the echo of what God told Abraham. Give your son, your only son, the son that you love. Think about Jesus. Think about Isaac. That's why Jesus' baptism was a baptism of death. Now, we understand that there's a violent word there, tear the heavens open. But this is not, this did not stop here. It was used again the moment Jesus died on the cross. What happened? At the cross, when he breathed his last, the Bible said the curtain, the veil of the temple was torn open. The same word, torn open. As if someone violently ripped the curtain of the temple from top to bottom, ripping it. You see, this is what the understanding of the Hebrews are. They understand that the heaven is the abode of God. It, th that's a given. But they also understand that the temple is also the house of God. And the inner chamber is the sanctuary of God. The veil that divides the inner chamber and the holy place is the heaven. So when the, the veil was torn open, it's like the heaven being torn open. Same thing. God is revealing himself as if God is saying, this is the time that I'm coming down. Jesus is the one that's being shown. Jesus is God in the flesh. See, going to the water is like crossing the Red Sea. But this time, there's no ark that will save in the time of Noah. There's no dividing of the sea. In the time of Jesus, there was no rescue. There was no rescue whatsoever. Instead, we see the heavens torn open. You see it. The reason why there was a voice from heaven that said, this is my beloved son whom I'm well pleased, is because even Jesus, the true son of God, at the start of his ministry, had to make this 
painful decision to surrender. This is not just a call for us, for his disciples to surrender. Jesus himself did this. If Jesus made this decision to surrender, how much more should we? If Jesus himself surrendered to the will of the Father, even to the point of death, how much more should we? If Jesus himself embodied the prayer he taught, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how much more should we? If Jesus himself prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane, not my will, but yours be done, how much more should we? I think if we really want to take God seriously, if we really want to grow our faith this year, if we truly want to become right like Christ, the first step is always surrender. And here's the thing. Surrender is not 85%. Surrender is not 95%. Surrender is everything. It has to be 100%. Because if you will not surrender even a percent, that's not surrender. Surrender has to be everything. Here's the question. Is there an area in your life that you've been keeping just for yourself? No one is allowed. Just me. Not even God can touch it. Just me. Is there an area in your life where it's like Jesus telling the rich man, you've, you've been doing everything good, but there's one thing left for you to do. Sell your possessions and come back and follow me. Is there an area in your life where it's too precious you cannot give up? Well, this can be a person, this can be a possession, this can be an experience. Anything that you deem important than Jesus, more important than following Jesus, is something that you can't give up, is a possession. What if you are the rich man at the feet of Jesus asking for eternal life? The question is this, are you, go, you going away sorrowful because you cannot give it up? Or you will, be, will you be a son? Will you be able to say, Jesus, I give up? I want to inherit that. I know that I'm giving up a lot, but I know that there's going to be something in return that's better than what I have right now. Or maybe if we can make a twist of this, maybe something else. Maybe it's yourself that you can give up. Maybe it's something that, that hurts you, that pains you. It's an experience. Or maybe you're having some trouble with forgiveness. I know that if I surrender myself to God, I will have to surrender also that, that experience of being hurt. I cannot forgive that person. You know what's interesting about the Lord's Prayer is, is that the condition for forgiveness is that if you also forgive others, forgive us our debts as we forgive others also. It's not repentance. It's forgiving others as well. Maybe you cannot do that. Maybe that hurt is too precious. You want to keep it. Or maybe, just maybe, what keeps you from surrendering your life what keeps you from embracing your calling? What keeps you from getting involved in the ministry is that you just simply don't want to move. You just simply want to decide. See, the reasons why Christians remain believers and not disciples is because people decided not to fully surrender. Beloved, the first step is surrender. There's no other way to inherit eternal life but to surrender. Now, if you're, you've been baptized, you understand what this means. It's about the rising and, and, and dying. It's about when you were dipped on the water, you die. And when you rise up from the water, you live. It's symbolic of resurrection. 
But if you've ha- made that decision, it doesn't stop there. Why? It's not just a spiritual checklist, you know, that you have, that you tick off your box. You know, I, I've done all the required things so I can get go to heaven. I've been baptized. I, I already prayed the sinner's prayer. I go to church. I've been a member of the church. I give every day. I give every Sunday. I go to church every Sunday. All the list. No, it's not like that. Every time we come to worship on Sunday is a participation in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Because we worship a living God, a living Christ who said, I will come back. Every time we participate in communion, we say, Maranatha, may Jesus come back. Again, communion is a celebration of his life and death. Every time we Pray the Lord's Prayer. We're praying, may your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. As if we're saying, I'm dying to my will. I'm surrendering my desires to you. I'm dying so that I can live this new life for Jesus. If we're going to start the year right, we're going to have to be face to face with the fact that we cannot do it properly without surrendering our will to God. You have to take that prayer seriously. Not my will, but yours be done. And if you're saying, yes, Lord, I'm surrendering, what's next to that is you come and follow Jesus. That's one of the hardest things to do, coming and following Jesus. It's easy to just come. It's hard to follow him and what he wants to. So if I'm going to ask you today, what does he want you to do? Is it just being here every Sunday is just working Monday to Friday. What is it that he wants you to do? As far as I know, the Bible is calling us to be good disciples. And as disciples, we are being called to the ministry. Here's one thing that I'd like you to understand. The pastor is not the only person called to the ministry. No, 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 no. We are all called to the ministry. Now, why? Because if that is so, then the pastor is the only one who will inherit eternal life. If we are all sons of God, we will inherit eternal life, then we have this call to discipleship. Now, I may have a different gift. You may have a different gift. We're not all preaching here. But you are also called to the ministry. Whatever we do after Sunday, Monday up to Friday in your workspaces, in your own context, in your culture, that is your ministry. And if you are not, your mentality is not doing ministry, then what is it that you're doing? Is it just about you? See, a lot of people have not dedicated their lives and they're just working for their lives. They just go to the office, go back to the house, and they're working and working. And finally, they would say, it's time for me to retire. I'm going to just enjoy my life. And maybe some, some Christians would do that. They would just work and work and work. And after that, they would retire and say, now is my time to do ministry. Our life, the moment you surrender your life to God, is called ministry. The moment you surrender your life to God, is called discipleship. The moment you surrender your life, is called following Jesus. This is rich man. It's confronted by a decision. Either he keeps the status quo, he does what he does best, following the law. He keeps his possession and everything that he owns there, but is not guaranteed eternal life. Or 
He can do what he does best, following the law. He sells his possession, everything that he thinks is dear to him, and follow Jesus. I think the challenge is clear. We have to surrender. Death is the way of surrender. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge that you are a good God and that you want what's best for us. And it's true that what you said, that if we lose this life, we will gain it the next. But if we keep this life, we will lose the next one. Father, we acknowledge that we have no right for an inheritance right now. And there's only way we can get that if we become a son. And that you're offering that to us. And there's a big price we have to pay to surrender our lives. Father, I pray for those who have not given their lives to you. I pray that you will give us an encounter with you. I pray that you will talk to us in a very personal way. If you have not made any decision to surrender your life to Christ, if until now you are living for yourself, I want to pray with you. I want to pray for you. And quickly, would you raise your hand so I know that I'm praying for you. If you want to make the decision to surrender your life, raise your hand. I want to pray for you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your goodness. You can see our hearts. You, we are transparent before you. There's nothing we can hide from you. We have your brothers and sisters who wants to surrender their lives to you. Father, I pray. I pray that your Holy Spirit will, will encounter them, will meet them where they are. I pray that you are the one who will assure us that it is not religion that saves us. It's not coming to church that gives us the guarantee to eternal life. It's the relationship with you. It's becoming your son, your daughter. Father, I pray that you will talk to them in your most precious way, in your personal way. For those of us here, Father, who are already been baptized, who's already walking in, in step with you, I pray that you will help us focus on your grace. Help us focus on following you. Help us focus on denying ourselves. Help us focus on following you and you alone. Father, there are so many distractions in this world. But I pray that you will help us. Help us focus on the truth. Help us focus on our call. And every time we come together to worship you, every time we do the communion, every time we pray, allow us to remember that this is about denying ourselves. It's about dying daily. It's about making decisions every day to surrender our will to you. And we surrender our will to you. But you look down upon us. Look from heaven. And look at us. And be pleased. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.